0: The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you gave your only son to be for us both a sacrifice for sin and an example of godly living. Give us grace, thankfully, to receive his inestimable benefits and daily to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives
1: and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.
0: Amen.
2: Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 13. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange god among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The word of the Lord.
1: for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord.
3: This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord
0: Christ.
3: That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And he stood still, or they stood still and looked sad. but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened, and moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning when they did not find his body, and they came back saying that they even had seen a vision of angels who said that that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, "'him they did not see. "'And he said to them, "'O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart "'to believe all that the prophets have spoken. "'Was it not necessary that the Christ "'should suffer these things and enter into his glory? "'And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, "'he interpreted to them all the scripture, "'the things that concerning himself. "'And so they drew near the village "'to which they were going, "'and he acted as if he were going further.' But they urged him strongly, saying, "'Stay with us, for it is towards evening, "'and the day is now far spent.' And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, "'Did not our hearts burn within us "'while he talked to us on the road? and while he opened this to us the scripture and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying the lord has risen indeed and has appeared to simon and then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread the gospel of the lord
0: Hi, everybody. One of the drawbacks of preaching on the road to Emmaus passage is I don't get to preach on that amazing Isaiah passage I just listened to. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you make yourself known to us. We thank you that Jesus is alive, and we thank you that his resurrection changes everything for us. We pray that as we look at this wonderful story that you would just give us comfort and help us to see you, amen. You may be seated. <laughs> so when, when Charlie and Mitzi arrived at the theater that night, they were taken aback by all the fuss. They knew that there were other performers on the show that night, but they weren't expecting this. Masses of humanity outside the theater, but they couldn't let that distract them. They were working-class, sketch comedians, and their focus was on getting their act right. Upon arrival, the host of the show had some last-minute suggestions for their act. And since this person had a lot of clout and show business, they knew these weren't mere suggestions. So they went to their hot dressing room and started working on honing their act. Then, a knock at the door. Charlie went to the door, and they opened the door, and they saw this sort of slightly odd-looking young man, and he made a request to them that just sounded like utter gibberish. But they eventually ascertained that this young man was asking if he could get a Coca-Cola. It turned out that Charlie and Mitzi's dressing room also housed the soda machine. So they dutifully consented, but they were frustrated and feeling the pressure. They're getting ready for their act. And this young man had trespassed on their precious rehearsal time in order to get a Coke. Nevertheless, they had a brief back and forth with him. And during the interaction, the young man happened to have a pen and paper in hand and quickly drew a sketch of Charlie, handed it to him, and then he left the dressing room, Charlie threw away the portrait, scoffed at the young man's pretentiousness. By showtime at 8 p.m., February 8, 1964, The MC of the show, a man by the name of Ed Sullivan, took the stage. Charlie and Mitzi, a comic duo known as McCall and Brill, had gotten a big break and had landed on Sullivan's show. What they hadn't known was that they were sharing the bill with a hot new British rock and roll import, some band from Liverpool called The Beatles. The man who had come to their dressing room had been John Lennon. I'm sure Charlie wishes to this day he's still alive that he still had the portrait that John had drawn of him. He and his wife had been in the presence of rock-and-roll greatness, but only later did they see it. These resurrection accounts all have their own unique charm and tone. They seem to run the gamut, from the solemn to the sweet to the comical to the poignant. And this account has all of it. There's a sense of humor to it. There was one commentator I read that remarked on the cheekiness of this account. It's brought to bear because we know more than these two people walking to Emmaus. We know that they're in the presence of greatness. We know that these two people's sadness and dejection are going to vanish in an instant. And they are downcast to what they see as their plight and the plight of their small band of followers. But then Luke gradually pulls the camera back, and we have the delight of watching these two people come to understand the experience they've just had. My late father had the privilege of being on a few search committees for churches and Christian organizations. There were a couple of questions he loved to ask prospective pastors that are employees. If you were on a desert island and could only have one book of the Bible, what would it be? Another one he had, if you could have been present for one event recorded in the Bible, what would it have been? Dad's answer was always the road to Emmaus, and I think it's because it combines two wonderful things: a resurrection appearance of Jesus, a can't-miss thing to be sure, but also a remarkable telling of the story of God that Jesus does. I wish one of these two people had written down what they heard, because it's not necessarily because I want more information. It's because I'd love to hear Jesus tell the old, old story in person. Sorry, I can't even make it through the intro. (laughs) So let's take a look at the account. I want to take a look at this account mainly through the eyes of these two travelers, who they were and what they experienced. But before I get to them, I just want to touch real quick on the prominence of Jerusalem to this account. Jerusalem ends up being a character here, In all the hubbub and hugely important stuff going on here, you might miss that the story begins and ends in the same place. Jerusalem has always been an important character for Luke, both in this gospel and in Acts. It was in Jerusalem that he begins his account. Remember, Zacharias is in the temple in Jerusalem when Gabriel appears to him. It was in Jerusalem that the infant Jesus was brought and met Simeon, the man who had waited so long to meet the Messiah. It was to Jerusalem that Jesus came at the age of 12 to celebrate Passover for the first time, and then he hung around afterwards to speak to the elders. And then his parents go back to Jerusalem to find him in anxiety. It was toward Jerusalem in Luke 9.51 that Jesus fixed his eyes. And it was, of course, in Jerusalem where the world-altering events of Holy Week took place. And so as we come to the day of the resurrection, Luke has just recounted in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 24 the first accounts of the followers of Jesus finding the empty tomb. And this all takes place in Jerusalem. Luke tells us that they're walking, these two people are walking away from Jerusalem to a village about seven miles away that would be between about here and Target Field for you baseball fans, as I am. It is a journey that, this, this, that Jesus appears to his followers. He appears during this journey, and since most people walk about three miles an hour, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour journey. And the journey cultivates in a revelation of Jesus to these disciples, and guess where they go after they get this revelation? Back to Jerusalem. The holy city becomes a character. It's a place of feasting and gathering during the old covenant. But interestingly, it's it's a place of revelation and sending out in the new covenant. And we kind of saw that in our Acts reading today. This this community, this covenant community depicted with such tenderness in Luke's same account. Feasting together, breaking bread together, praying, and more people coming into their community. So with Jerusalem in mind, Let's talk about the two travelers and their legendary walk. The story bridges the gap between the disarray and marvel of up to verse 12 to the ultimate appearance of Jesus to the disciples in verse 36. But for me, an even more basic question, who are these two people? And it's not just because I love puzzles, though I do, but it really does have an effect on the story the more we can find out about them. We are, in fact, given the name of one of them, so that helps us. Cleopas is named in verse 18. Getting to know him gives us insight into why his story matters, as well as who the other traveler might be. And it gives us context and empathy for their situation. What do we know about Cleopas? Well, we know he's a close disciple, though not one of the 12. We get a clue to his proximity to Jesus if we look at the Gospel of John. In John 19.25, John writes, but standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, we can get into the grammar weeds a bit here, and I like doing that because I like languages, but I won't spare you that. But the Greek's a little vague, but one interpretation that makes a lot of sense is that this verse is mentioning three women. Mary, Jesus' mother... Mary's sister, whose name is Mary of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, it's unlikely that Mary, Jesus' mother, would have a blood sister named Mary. So it seems likely that Mary of Clopas was Mary's sister-in-law. Now, going back to Cleopas. Cleopas was a very unusual name in the first century. So Cleus is almost certainly a Greek version of the name Clopas from John's Gospel. So it's reasonable to assume that Cleopas, our traveler on the road to Emmaus, was not only a close disciple of Jesus, but his wife had been present at the cross. So the identity of one of these travelers has immediate power. His wife was at the cross. She saw the brutality and must have seen Jesus die, and she must have related to Cleopas. And it must have been so traumatic for both of them. So who is the second person? Since the second person is unnamed, we can only speculate. Obviously, God, in his wisdom, doesn't tell us. But it must have been someone else close to Jesus. And one interesting note, the gender's never revealed of this other person. I did a Google search of artistic renderings of this story, and every single one of them depicts both travelers as men even though the text only explicitly says one of them is a man. So one intriguing idea, and I did see some people say this, is that it could have been Mary of Clopas on the road with her husband. Could Clopas and his wife been traveling to Emmaus and Jesus joined them? We'll never know for sure, but it doesn't seem unlikely. I read one scholar this week who openly speculated that Cleopas and Mary are the two travelers. They were residents of Emmaus, who had been in Jerusalem because it had just been Passover. That's where you go. And they were making their way home. The important thing is, to be sure, though, in spite of all the speculation, is that Jesus loved these two people very much, and they were close to him. So Luke tells us in verse 15 that Jesus joins them on their journey, and then In verse 16, he says that their eyes were kept from seeing him. And there's some interesting echoes here to me of Genesis 3, especially if this pair is a husband and wife. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve hear God walking, and they hide themselves. Here, on the day of the resurrection, God walks again with them during the day, but only here he hides himself from the people. And there's almost a touch of humor to the way Jesus plays this. Sort of funny, you think about going up to a couple people who are already involved in a conversation you say, hey, what are you talking about? And at the end of verse 17, Luke brings it back to earth by recording this jewel. They stood still, looking sad. They're frozen by this traveler's unawareness. And the need they have to go over this story, again, probably made them really sad. Any of you who have had to share bad news over and over again can understand this. And when Cleopas expresses surprise that he doesn't know the things going on, Jesus, again, coyly responds, what things? And it may seem odd at first glance that Jesus is asking questions like this, that he's acting like this, but... God has a habit of asking his people questions he already knows the answer to. Genesis 3, where are you? Exodus 4, to Moses, staff in hand, what's in your hand? Jonah 4, do you have reason to be angry? And Luke 8:45, who touched me? Luke doesn't tell us why Jesus' identity is kept from them, but it allows Jesus to hear their hearts, and it allows them to openly express where they are and how they are feeling. And it is an understatement to say that they are sad. And to truly appreciate the depth of their sadness, we can think back to the crucifixion. The two of them tell Jesus that part of what saddens them is the hopes they had for Jesus. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The hope they had. Not only was he dead, but he had been disgraced. Crucifixion was specially reserved for the lowest of the low. No citizen or person of standing would have been put to death like this. Writer Fleming Rutledge, in her stunning book on the crucifixion, points out that we don't know the names of anyone else in this time of history who was crucified other than Jesus. He's the only person that we have an identity who was crucified. That's how much crucifixion would blot out somebody's dignity and their name. And so these two disciples are not simply reacting to the death of their friend. They're dealing with feelings of abandonment, and they may even thought that Jesus was a fraud. We trusted this person and spent so much time with him. We gave him our time, our resources, our lives. And we've all had times when we feel we have wasted days or weeks on something that ends up being vain. These two have spent years following this person, and they're left to wonder and pick up the pieces They're disoriented, they're depressed, they're traumatized by the horror they have just seen two days earlier. And then in verses 21 through 24, they relate to them what's kind of a confusing account of some some friends seeing at the empty tomb. They're kind of just all over the place because they're hearing these different accounts and they don't know whether to be hopeful or scared. they don't know what to believe. And so they've left Jerusalem and they're trying to figure out what comes next. And then the great revelation, and it comes really in two phases. First, Jesus gives them that great history lesson and tells them everywhere he is in the scriptures from verses in verses 25 through 27. Can you imagine hearing that? It must have changed their lives. so much so that they told Luke about it and he wrote it down. And for us reading, we're thinking probably, at least, surely this is how God will reveal himself. But interestingly enough, the teaching is not how God chooses to reveal himself. They arrive at Emmaus in verse 28. Then Jesus kind of plays it coy again. He says, well, I'm going on. But these two travelers are intrigued by this wandering stranger who just opened up the entire Old Testament to them. Verses 30 through 31, he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. (laughs) The final four verses of the account kind of feel like the ultimate palm to the forehead. Verse 32, of course it was him. Our hearts burned when he taught us. Something in them knew it was Jesus, even on the road. When I thought about this, I thought about something, and I thought about the fact that I mentioned my dad earlier in this sermon. He died almost 11 years ago. And in the years since, there's been a few times when I've seen him in my dreams. And you know how dreams are there's a reality to it, even though it's not really real. Every time that has happened, it's been only a few times that I can remember. I always wake up feeling the same feeling. Wow, it was really nice to see him again. I miss him. There was something familiar to Cleopas and his companion that went beyond their ability to recognize Jesus. Something deep within them knew they had been with him, even though they had missed it. Verse 33, let's go back to Jerusalem and tell the 11. Imagine something with me for a minute, Let's, no phones, I'll give you a car, okay, but no phones. They're seven miles from Jerusalem, what would have to happen for you right now to drop everything and run seven miles? <laughs> to Tell them, or to get in your car and drive two hours to Duluth or whatever, because you, you know something that you just have to tell these people. You have to share this news, the urgency and excitement here. They have seen him, they've gotta tell. Verse 34, he is risen, Peter sign. Verse 35, he was known in the breaking of the bread. So one of the problems with preaching a passage like this, I've found is that there's too many different things I could talk about forever. But there's two things that I wanted to just sort of close my thoughts with. One of them is the obvious thing. Jesus is alive. Amen. This account clearly shows a physical, risen Jesus. He walks alongside his disciples. He breaks bread. They are not wondering, is this a person? He's alive. And second... God, in His grace, gives us different ways to know Him. Why don't these two recognize Him? It says in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. Who do you think kept them from recognizing Him? I think God, in His grace, is choosing how He's going to reveal Himself to His two disciples. As I said earlier, one would think that the amazing exposition of Jesus concerning himself would do it. God does use teaching to reveal himself, and I'm very grateful for that. I've been the beneficiary of so much wonderful teaching in this building and other buildings. Teaching's amazing. Praise God for it. But if that had been what he used here, would we have the fact that they recognized him because he broke bread? How lovely. Perhaps you can think of a time when you recognize someone from far off just by how they walked. Maybe you've entered a home and knew someone was home because you smelled the food that only they make like that. Jesus chose the breaking of bread to reveal himself. Jesus tells his follower the old, old story on the road and adds another beautiful chapter when he reveals himself in this way. Let's embrace all the ways God shows himself to us. He's given us a banquet. Let's take the example of these two followers. Let's all be willing to drop everything and immediately travel seven miles to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. The Lord is risen indeed, hallelujah. Let's pray. O God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, open the eyes of our faith, that we may behold him in the fullness of his redeeming work, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.